Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So very glad to have you with us. All right. Christmas Day, two days from now, and even though it doesn't sound like we're going to have a particularly white Christmas, sounds like we're going to have a cold Christmas. This morning, when I got up to take my little dog out, I was, again, I, it's December, I, I get it, it's the end of December, and it is Wisconsin, so expect it to be cold. I, I went out this morning fully expecting, I guess, to, to get hit in the face with a cold blast of air, and actually it was quite temperate, and it's up to 50 degrees now, but do not get used to it. If you're listening to the weather forecast, there is a cold front that is moving through, and they're talking about uh, single digits, uh, single digit temperatures by tomorrow evening. The wind chill a lot colder than that, so big changes are coming. The good news is again, at least if you look at the immediate forecast, there's no predictions of major snowstorms. If that, and I say good news, I understand if you're one of those people that just can't get enough snow, you're a little bummed out. My message would be, don't worry, I'm sure we're going to get some um, sometime in the relatively near future. Secondly, um, for people who don't like the bitter cold weather, it appears that this is a relatively brief cold snap in that by the weekend, after we get through Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, the low temperatures are supposed to be up in the low 30s again. I mean, understand it's not it's not Miami, Florida weather, but nevertheless, it, it's not bad and stuff that you can certainly expect for Wisconsin in December. So just, I don't know, throw another log on the fire over the next night or two. Interesting story in the uh, in the news, and it's, it's one of these where... I, I, Nobody asks the, the, the right question. The, the, the story is that um, the Menominee Falls police chief, her name is Anna Rosinski, and, and she's been on our air for time to time. She is going to be resigning to take the position as the U.S. Marshal for the Eastern District of Wisconsin. Now, the, the, for, for people who aren't familiar with the way like federal system works, in Wisconsin, the state is really divided into there's the Eastern District of Wisconsin and there's the Western District. If you would go out to Madison and sort of draw a line north and south, the Eastern District would be the eastern third of the state all the way to, to the top that contains about two thirds of the state's population. The Western District of Wisconsin, starting at Madison and going west, has about two thirds of the geographic area, but only about a third of the population. And so there is, well, for example, when I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office, I worked in the Eastern District of Wisconsin. I was an assistant United States Attorney, later the Deputy United States Attorney. And we were responsible for the criminal prosecutions and the civil cases involving the United States in the Eastern Third of the state. The U.S. Attorney is a political appointment appointed by the President, who serves at the pleasure of the President. The U.S. Marshals Service, and there is a U.S. Marshal for each district. So in Wisconsin, you've got two U.S. Marshals, one for the Eastern District, Wisconsin, one for the Western District. The U.S. Marshal is also a political appointment who serves at the pleasure of the president. What makes this story interesting to me is that uh, Anna Ruzinski, 
who was confirmed, she was nominated last February to be the U.S. Marshal for the Eastern District of Wisconsin. The Senate approved her on the 16th of December, and President Trump just signed off on that appointment, the final appointment on, on Tuesday. So now she's eligible to take over that position. She will have to resign her position in Menominee Falls. Here's what's interesting about this. These are political appointments. It's not like you take the gig as U.S. Marshal and you've signed a four-year contract or a six-year contract, even though we know when it comes to the Milwaukee Fire and Police Commission, contracts don't really matter. But typically what happens is when there is a change in administration, the new administration, in this case the Biden administration, comes in and they 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 demand resignations for all of the political appointments, all the U.S. attorneys For example, there's 94 representing different districts across the country. Um, Within a couple days of Joe Biden taking over, all the U.S. attorneys will in all likelihood get a notification saying, you know, we're we're going to need your resignation. Uh, Same thing is true for U.S. marshals. Now, in some cases, what happens is that the current U.S. attorney or the U.S. marshal gets to continue serving until his or her replacement is ready. But sooner or later, there, there will be a replacement. Now, I, I, again, it's, it's a great honor, and I'm, I'm glad, I'm thrilled that she's going to get the job. She seems like a very qualified candidate. But you want to talk about a short-term job. This is a short-term job because President Trump is leaving office on January 20th. He might not want to go. He might have to drag him picking, kicking and screaming out of the out of the Oval Office, but he's going to be gone. And Joe Biden will begin the process of filling slots like the U.S. Marshal slot or the U.S. Attorney slot with people of his own choosing. And they, they might I mean, they might allow the new U.S. Marshal. They might allow Anna Rosinski to stay in there and she might be able to stay for six months. She might be able to stay for a year. I, I, I don't know. But this is this is one of these situations where it comes to this job. It's really a a rent don't buy sort of deal because you're a political appointee. You're taking over at the very last. I mean, you know, our number, you know, you're five minutes before midnight. You're taking over and you know that in all likelihood you're going to be replaced. Now, she could apply you know, to to keep the job. And and I guess it's possible that that could happen that typically, though, doesn't happen because, uh, again, normally new administration comes in. They have their own people that they want to put into these political appointments. So maybe she'll be there for a couple years. My guess is more likely she'll be there for six months or 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 maybe a little bit more. That would be kind of the guess. Maybe it's a nice way to crap off your career in law enforcement, but um, it's not necessarily a long-term sort of deal. All right, when we come back, they got the dough. They might not have been entitled to it. Where do we go from here? I will explain. We will discuss. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. One of the large and legitimate complaints with Tony Evers' Department of Workforce Development over the last six to nine months has been the failure of that department to timely process unemployment claims. And that's resulted in many of you waiting 
weeks and weeks or months and months to be compensated, to get unemployment compensation that you were entitled to. You've kind of been caught in that, gee, my file is stuck somewhere. I, I need somebody to move it to the top of the list. And there's a lot of blame to go around as to why that happens, but it has been a huge problem. So we've talked a lot on this program about people who deserve the money, should get the money, but haven't gotten the money. What about the flip side, though? What about people who got the money, got it in an early fashion, but now may not be entitled to it? Should they have to pay the dough back? Now, what caught my attention is that there's a story that the Today's TMJ4 ran, I think, yesterday on a guy who's out of Walworth County. And, and here, here's the deal. He applied early on for unemployment compensation. And he, he initially... They looked at it. They thought he was qualified for it. So they started paying him unemployment. And he collected unemployment for you know several months, including, and ultimately, he collected in the neighborhood of $10,000 in, in unemployment compensation. So he got about ten grand, you know, total. Now, as the state is going back and looking at this, they are at least taking the position that he wasn't entitled to the money, that the money they paid him was incorrect, that his claim for unemployment should have been denied. And apparently the issue is, was he fired? Did he quit? You know, did he lose his job? All, all those different things. But he got the money up front. And now that they're taking a look at it, they're saying, hey, you know, he might not have been entitled. We should have denied this. Perhaps we should have denied this. And so the today's TMJ4 story is talking to the guy, and they're focusing on the fact that the Department of Workforce Development is now reaching out and saying, this money that was paid to you, it was paid, we believe, in error, and and you need to pay it back. So the, the tone of the story is, of course, well, here, here's the the mean state government, they're the Grinches, they're the Scrooges, you know, that they're, they're pressuring, it's the holidays, you know, they're reaching out to this guy and his wife and his family, and they want him to pay back $10,000 in unemployment money that, that he'd gotten. And, you know, the family is saying, I, I just, I don't know if we're going to have enough money to pay next month's rent, and, and, you know, this is, this has just been terrible, and, you know, we don't know where this money is going to come from. And again, the tone is how awful of the Department of Workforce Development to ask for this money back. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, this, this isn't a, a, a minor mistake. It's not like, gee, you know, you were supposed to be entitled to $200 a week and, and you got 212 because we miscalculated the thing. This is a situation where he was initially given the unemployment, but now based on their further investigation, they determined that he probably, that their position is that he wasn't entitled to it. I, I take no position on whether he should have, he should get the money or not. And obviously, if he's entitled to the money, well, he should keep it, and I'm glad he got it in a timely fashion, just like I I wish lots of other people didn't have to wait to get their compensation. But what I find to be interesting is, what if the state is right? What if this money was paid out, and he was never entitled to it in the first place? He files the claim. They, in a rush to make sure he gets the money, you know, give him the money because he needed it. But now it turns out, if for the sake of argument, it turns out that he wasn't entitled to it, 
Should he be expected to pay it back? Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And I look, I, I don't mean to be a Scrooge. I don't mean to be a Grinch around Christmas time. But if this was a situation where somebody was paid, in this case, like ten grand, that as it turns out upon further investigation, they weren't entitled to, yes, I, I think they have to pay it back. And I don't fault the state of Wisconsin for going and trying to collect it, if that is in fact the case. Now, maybe the guy's completely legitimate, and by completely legitimate, I mean that, that maybe he's entitled to the money, in which case he keeps it. But if the state believes, based on their investigation, that they paid out this money in error, yes, I, I think from the perspective of the taxpayers and the unemployment compensation fund and all that, yeah, I, I think you have to collect that if you weren't entitled to something in the first place. Just like if, I don't know, the, the IRS makes a mistake. You know, they're, they're looking at your, at your tax return and they do a calculation and they figure, hey, you've overpaid your taxes and here we're going to give you $5,000 back. And then six months later, they determine that that $5,000 was incorrectly paid to you. They're going to ask it back. And, and I think that they're entitled to it. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If it turns out that this guy got thousands of dollars that he was not entitled to, is it unreasonable to expect him to pay it back? And my answer would be no. We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620. And again, let me just say, I, I, I have I have no idea whether this guy was legitimately entitled to the unemployment comp or not. The, he got it. He was initially war, awarded it, so he got $10,000. Now the state is looking at it, and upon further investigation, they have determined they don't think that he's entitled to it. So they're saying, we want the money back. Now he's fighting that determination. My only point is, if it turns out he wasn't entitled to it in the first place, ah, I think he has to pay it back. Terry, uh, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Um, I've got a potentially similar situation, and I'm questioning the state of Wisconsin because, in my case, I was told that I didn't qualify for unemployment. I was a Lyft and Uber driver, okay. and I have my own business. And I was told, I, I filed, I was told I didn't qualify because I was an independent contractor. Right. And I went on and filed for PUA, which took forever. It wasn't until August I finally had an agent get a hold of me and interview me at length, asked me a lot of questions. I gave accurate answers, and I was ultimately told that I did qualify. Right. I started to do the, do the filings. They paid me all the back pay. And now I'm hearing Lyft is challenging the fact mm-hmm. that I I should be an independent contractor. And there's a hearing set uh, upcoming. And I may end up having to pay all this money back. And my opinion is the state had two shots at me, and they still made a mistake. And now I'm going to be on the hook for the money. So your your right your position would be that well let me just ask you would the state then have been better off in not sending you the money in the first place and just saying okay we're going to put a hold on this um make you wait six nine months or whatever because there might be this issue see I mean that's the problem the state's in it's like okay we want to get people paid because we think it's legit and then then there's another objection to it so. I mean, I, I guess I would think you'd be better off getting the money and then trying to argue why you're entitled to keep it, if you follow me. 
well, I would have qualified for PUA, so yeah. I would have still got something. Right. But then when they said that I was, I was it, yeah. not an independent contractor, I no longer qualified for PUA. Got it. And they put me on, on the regular. And by the way, I filed like the end of March. Yeah. It took until August. So this wasn't something where they were rushing to get me the money. <laughs> no, no, that, no, thanks. No, and, and, I, and look, and I, I understand that you get caught up in this, this bureaucracy. And I mean, it sounds to me your, your biggest beef is with, with Lyft and, you know, go to the hearing and, and demonstrate that you're entitled to it. I guess that's, that, that, that's the point. My, my bigger point is if you, if, if we're complaining about the Department of Workforce Development and our, our beef is that, gee, they, they didn't pay claims in a timely fashion or they're taking too long to adjudicate these type of claims, you, you, and we, we want people paid quicker. If they pay somebody quickly and then it turns out that they paid somebody in error, I, I don't think we can fairly say, well, okay, it, it's their problem. No, we, we want them to pay it quickly. And if it turns out they made an error, I think the person who got that money erroneously is on the hook to pay it back. Like I say, just just as you would if you know you made the IRS made a mistake in auditing your taxes and sent your money back and then it determined that you weren't entitled to get it and and look i i, I hope the guy's able to keep his 10 grand i hope this cuz i understand it's going to be a hardship to go and expect him to have to pay back $10,000 but from the perspective of the overall system if he got it erroneously seems to me he has to pay it back jeff wagner on wtmj If you look back over the last couple of years of the Trump administration, right, and, and let's let's forget about the impeachments, let's forget about Russia, 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 let's forget about the 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 tweets and things like that. I, I think you, you can look at a couple failures. One was the failure to make significant changes to the Affordable Care Act. Part of the reason, in my opinion, that failed is you had no leadership at all from the president. It wasn't like, for example, Act Ten. You can agree with Act 10, you can disagree with Act 10, but Act 10 was something that was conceived by then-Governor Scott Walker, and it was driven then by Governor Scott Walker. You know, the, the legislature ended up falling in line on a partisan, on a, on a political party vote, but it, it was it was driven by the vision of the governor. When it came to health care reform, you, you got no vision from President Trump. He'd say, well, we, we need to we need to have changes. But it wasn't like he came out. This is my 15 point policy plan. This is what I want to see in the law. He kind of stood on the outside of the process, watched the legislation be made. And then at the end, kind of complained when, you know, a couple people didn't vote for it. But it, it wasn't like there was leadership on this particular issue. The same thing is kind of playing out with this stimulus proposal that's going on. For the last several months, there has been an ongoing battle in Washington, D.C. about whether we want, whether we should have a second stimulus or not. The Democrats want $3 trillion. The Republicans were saying, okay, around $900 billion. That, that's as much as we will go for a second round of stimulus. There has been a deal that has been cut. And it look, it's 
I don't know if I was a representative whether I would vote for it or not. There's some really good things in it. There's some eh, things in it. And then there's some really bad things in it. And, you know, overall, again, I don't know whether I would vote for this or not. But President Trump has essentially been on the sidelines while all this has been going on. So finally, the Republicans and the Democrats hammer together this deal that passes by veto-proof majorities in the House and the Senate. Nobody's really happy with it. The Democrats want a lot more money spent. The Republicans want less money spent, but they've kind of settled on this like $900 billion thing, which will result in continued unemployment benefits for long-term unemployed, an additional $300. It was $600 the first time around, and it will result in Americans who make below a certain income level get a $600 check instead of a $1,200 check that was sent out the first time. If you have dependent children, first time around, I think you got $300. This time around, it boosts it up to $500. So um, for a qualifying family of four uh, with two dependent children and mom and dad, $600, $600, $500, 500 so that would be 2200 and I gotta double check. It might that the childcare thing might even be six hundred now that I'm saying it. But but regardless, it's not the twelve hundred bucks for adults. It, it's six hundred dollars. Okay, so Congress reaches this agreement, and then President Trump, playing his role of wreck it Ralph, comes out yesterday and starts denouncing this deal that he had almost nothing to do with crafting, other than the fact that his Secretary of the Treasury did sit in some of these meetings. And President Trump is talking about, hey, he's thinking about vetoing this. He thinks it doesn't give enough money in the form of stimulus. He thinks people should get $2,000 instead of 600 bucks. And he thinks that there's all sorts of other pork in this that, that might need to come out. And this is the first that I think lots of politicians are hearing about the president's objections, including the fact that while he wasn't a leader driving this, his Treasury Secretary was kind of in the room while this whole thing was being discussed. So now President Trump is threatening to veto this. The Democrats have jumped on this. Nancy Pelosi is saying, oh, he, he's he's exactly right at least about part of this, We're, we want to come back in session, and on Christmas Eve, let's have a vote. Let's up the stimulus payments from $600 to $2,000 apiece. And right now, the whole thing is in just a complete and total uproar. Now, my guess is, at the end of the day, the president's going to sign off on this. But, but by doing what he's doing, what he's done is thrown this huge element of, again, disorder, the, the Wreck-It Ralph type of thing, into something that took months to negotiate. And I'm not saying he's necessarily wrong when it comes to identifying pork in this. There, there probably is. But if that was the case, and you were going to be threatening a veto, shouldn't you have been talking about that all along instead of when Americans are, are waiting for their stimulus relief? And, you know, theoretically, they thought checks would be going out by next Monday with this latest tirade by the president. Um, now that whole thing is put into doubt. I don't think there's any way in the world that Republicans in the Senate are going to go back and increase the stimulus payment to two thousand dollars. I just don't think that's going to happen. But Democrats will, with an eye on those Georgia elections, definitely in the House of Representatives, try to hold hearings, try to up it, say, hey, President Trump thinks it should be $2,000. Why won't those evil Republicans go along with it? And again, this Wreck-It Ralph strategy has just thrown 
a monkey wrench into things and created all sorts of turmoil where turmoil did not need to exist. All right, I want to talk about one aspect of this this stimulus plan, though, and that is the fact $600 to many, many Americans. The uh, limit, let me see here, it's 600 bucks if you make... $75,000 or less, single person, $75,000 or less, you, you get 600 bucks. Um, if your joint income exceeds 150,000, they start phasing it out. But up to $150,000, you would get, in this case, uh, two $600 payments plus, as it turns out, 600 bucks for each of your dependent children. So anybody, $150,000 $150,000 or less is going to get 1200 bucks. President Trump wants to up that to $2,000 a piece, meaning $4,000. 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. My problem with this all along has been the, the limits on these stimulus payments are way, way, way too high. There are some people who have been very, very severely affected by the pandemic and COVID-19. There are other people who have continued to work through this, who've gotten their paychecks. In some cases, maybe the paychecks have been slightly reduced. But for other people, lots of other people, millions of other people, it has been business as usual. And in some cases, people have thrived because they're in industries that have been particularly suited to the pandemic. My beef all along is simply saying to a married couple that has adjusted gross income of $150,000 or less, here, here's money, here, here, here's a gift, without tying it in in any way, shape, or form to impact from the pandemic is fundamentally wrong. And the idea that you're going to give even more money, you know, if, if you thought 1200 bucks was too much in the spring, the idea that we're now going to raise that to $2,000 and send checks out to people, including people who might have a couple million dollars sitting in retirement accounts, might have a net worth of several million dollars, but simply because their adjusted gross income for 2019 was below $150,000, we're going to, at the taxpayer expense, give these people thousands of dollars. I think is crazy. The disappointment of this is we've had months to work on it, and we haven't figured out a way to target stimulus payments to people who have been impacted by COVID-19 and who need the money. 855-616-1620, that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I I have hesitancy about sending everybody $600 payments. I sure think it's a bad idea to send everybody $2,000 payments. Now, could you give me an example where you might say, Jeff, I think this person might deserve 2000 Maybe. But just across the board, that's crazy. We discuss in a moment. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And, and no, President Trump hasn't been leading on the $2,000. That The 600 bucks that was agreed to, that was a number that was come up with by the President's uh, Treasury Secretary with the implication that that would be acceptable to the President. Now, last week, 
the president apparently told a couple aides, well, I, I think the 600 bucks is too low. I think it should be 1200 or 2000 But the aides convinced him not to intervene because there, there wouldn't be support for that higher number, and they wanted to get something done. And now that they get something done, he comes out and says, oh, it's got to be $2,000. I mean, th- this is Wreck-It Ralph in, in, in the extreme. But beyond this, whether it's 600 or 1200 or 2000 I think it's crazy just to send it out to everybody like they did before. Figure out a way to target it to people. And I'm getting emails from people saying, oh, you know, you don't, don't you understand people need money? Yeah, some people do. But on the other hand, I know lots of people who have lots of money, but because their adjusted gross income for 2019 was below $150,000, they're going to qualify for this. That's crazy. It just flat is. Figure out a way to get it to the people who need it. Let's talk to Vincent on the northwest side. Hi, Vincent. Good good afternoon, Jeff, and Merry Christmas to you and yours. Same to you, sir. Uh, and the fact is that little boy Trump just basically threw Mitch McConnell and the Republicans who voted for this uh, stimulus package, package under the bus. He did, exactly yep. he did, and I think he did it on purpose. You know, I, th- I don't know if it's revenge for, for basically you know, the election or whatever, but uh, this is what he did. But, yeah, I think you're right. It, the, the fact is this, this stimulus should be targeted. There are, there are people out here who, who really, really need this money. Uh, my wife and I, we really don't need this money, uh, the $600, whatever we're mm-hmm. going to get, but we really don't need that money. But there are people out here who have yep. been struggling for the, for the last past uh, 12, 12 to 13 yep. months here. And 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 uh, and it's ridiculous what they do. And nobody talks about the deficit deficit right. that's being blown, right. but but continue to, uh, to give out this money. It's ridiculous. But right. And, and see, and what the frustrating thing to me has been, we've had all these months to work on this, and we haven't figured out a way to target the relief, like you say, to the people who, who need it. There may very well be sort of subsets of people that you would say, okay, we're, we're sending these folks $2,000. And I would have absolutely no problem with that because they've been adversely affected by the pandemic. But to pay people who have net worths in the several million dollars and send them 600 1000 2000 simply because their adjusted gross income for 2019 was below a certain level, that, that makes no sense to me. It just, it, and it shouldn't make any sense to anybody vincent <laughs> exactly well you know that the problem is that the politicians don't want to do the work they don't want to get up there and do the work to figure out how can we get it to the people people that where where this money yeah. can matter yeah. and this is what we end up with right now th- thanks for call and so you, you have this and look i understand why we did this in march because you, you had this pandemic that just hit out of the clear blue. You had millions of Americans with no notice at all who lost their jobs and their livelihoods. And what we had to do is figure out a way to try to get money into people's hands as a as a short term stopgap to let them you know pay their to pay their bills and to keep the economy from cratering. I, I get all that. All right. So so you take this shotgun approach in in the spring. Well, okay. We're, we're, it's now December, and and we haven't figured out a way to give targeted relief so people who have net worths of several million dollars for example don't don't get an additional stimulus check that does not that they don't need that everybody else is going to have to pay for um john yeah you're on wtmj good afternoon hey jeff how are you doing real well thank you what do you think 
Good. I agree with you, and same with the last caller. I'm kind of in the same situation. Uh, I've been working all along. I don't need the money. If they're going to give me 600 bucks, that's great. Uh, back in April of the past spring, Forbes magazine uh, had an article, and there were 43,000 Americans that made over a million dollars a year mm-hmm. and tucked in, you know, tucked in their plan. They each received an average of a $1.7 million check. And if you don't believe me, it was in Forbes magazine. I'm looking at the article right now. And mm-hmm. like the last guy said, the government needs to do their work. Get it to the people that need it. Yeah. There's a lot of them that need it bad. Well, well exactly. Just, right. No, I'm, no I, thanks for, I, I'm with you. And, and that's why, I mean, one of the ongoing frustrating things for me has been it's, it's, been, it's taken so long. that If this were not for the election year politics, this would have been done, should have been done several months ago. I personally believe that Nancy Pelosi could, I believe Nancy Pelosi could have had this deal, the the $600 deal, could have had it three months ago, but decided not to do it because she didn't want to give that to President Trump. Because our, because if, you know, if the election is coming up, if all of a sudden a week or two weeks before the election, we have, you know, $600 checks going out, that will serve to benefit Trump. We don't want to do that. They could have had this deal a while back. But the bigger point is, for the last six months, they've had an opportunity to figure out how to do something other than just this scattergun approach. And, and by the way, I, I, I do believe you when you talk about, I mean, I don't know exactly what the numbers are, but I, I know lots of people who don't quote unquote need the money, but they qualify for it because uh, again, you're only looking at one line on somebody's tax returns for one particular year. So if you've got five million dollars in a retirement account, but your 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 income is Social Security, and maybe you're hitting your four hundred one k for sixty or seventy grand a year, it it doesn't put you over that limit. Boom, you you get the stimulus check, even though you are what many po- people would describe as incredibly wealthy. And and for I'm getting some feedback from this from some of our more left wing friends saying, well, you know, you you know, we 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 just have to get money into people's hands. Well, okay, why? When did we become all about just sending money to people who by no objective measure need it? And again, I'm, I'm not faulting people. If Look, if you go out to your mailbox or you read, you, you, you download your bank statement one day and the federal government has been silly enough to put 600 or 1200 or $2,000 into your checking account, I don't expect you to give it back. I mean, I, I, I understand that and this would be nice, but how do you explain this to people who are living on fixed incomes or things of the like, how do you explain that, gee, we're giving money to people who I think everybody else would agree would be wealthy? Figure out a way to target the relief. And by the way, there's all sorts of other problems with this bill, too. You know, the president is talking about all the pork that's buried in there. But the frustrating thing about this, and what I describe as the Wreck-It Ralph approach, is that his guys were in the room. All right, he had an opportunity, he's had an opportunity over the last seven, eight, nine months to craft his own stimulus relief package. He didn't do it. 
So you've got his guy in the room that's working with the congressional negotiators, and the Treasury Secretary is saying, or at least implying, these are the things that are acceptable to the president. So you put something like that together, and then he decides he wants to blow it up. Now, at the end of the day, he's going to sign this. At least that's my prediction. He's he's not going to veto this whole thing. But as one of our callers said, he's exactly right. What he's done is he's thrown Mitch McConnell and the Republicans under the bus because for the next couple days, Nancy Pelosi is going to be saying, see, even the president wants to give $2,000 a piece, and those Republicans in the Senate won't go along with it. I'm, I'm just I'm, I'm looking forward to a time when things settle down a little bit. Maybe that'll be at the end of January. I don't know. When we come back, got a real interesting text at the start of the show based on something I said, and I want to share it with you because I guess the question is, are things really going to change? at the end of January. In other words, is President Trump going to be leaving the White House on January 20th? I'll share the text, I'll explain what it's all about, and we'll discuss. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. I admit... Stuff like this, just even though it's two days before Christmas, it makes my head want to explode. Now, as I was talking about the things we we're going to discuss on today's program, one of the things I alluded to was the fact that President Trump was going to be leaving office. Now, reluctantly, but he's going to be leaving office on, on January 20th. And I want to share with you in its entirety a text that I got from somebody. Jeff, Joe Biden will not be taking office on January 20th. I just read Epic Time, an Epic Times article saying that senators will object to the Electoral College on January 6th. The House definitely has members that are contesting the election. The House will vote for president. The Senate will vote for vice president. One vote for state, 30 Republican states, and only 20 Democratic states. Okay, so the the theory is that despite despite the fact that the electoral college ha, has met and they've certified and, and they have declared Joe Biden to be the winner of the election, despite the fact that there have been dozens and dozens of court challenges to the legitimacy of the election results filed in state and federal court, and that none of None of those lawsuits have gone anywhere, despite the fact that the Supreme Court has said we're, we're not getting involved in this. There are people out there who believe that there will still be an effort undertaken which will prevent Joe Biden from being sworn in. Now, I, there's a lawsuit, another lawsuit, which has been filed, and you have two state lawmakers from Wisconsin who have signed on to this. It was brought in federal court late Tuesday against officials in the, the various the various states where the, the Trump campaign was alleging problems. Wisconsin, Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Arizona, th- those five. And it, it, what, what this is, is it's a lawsuit which asks the court to step in to intervene and demand that the governor and the state legislators, the head of the assembly, the head of the state senate, demand that they cast their votes for Joe Biden. They demand that their electoral votes be cast for Joe Biden instead of Donald Trump. 
I'm sorry, I have this heavy sigh that is out there. The, the way this would work is on January 6th, what's supposed to happen is that the Congress gets together and they're supposed to ratify the, it's normally, they ratify the Electoral College's decision. That this, this move is designed to get House Republicans to object to the vote tabulating process. And again, ultimately, the plan would be to have the Electoral College results thrown out and have, I don't know, the states vote individually through their representatives in Congress, which presumably, state by state, would result in Donald Trump being reinstated. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. What do you think of stuff like this? And again, I see, I don't care whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. I don't care whether you're a Trump supporter or a Biden supporter. At some point in time, don't the grown-ups have to move in and say enough is enough. This is not how a democracy operates. All right. It, I understand if there are people who think that there were, you know, fraudulent procedures that went on in the election. I understand the argument that we should let people file lawsuits. We should let the matter proceed through the courts. Well, matters have proceeded through the courts, state courts, federal courts, and the, the courts have not decided to intervene to come up with this strategy that says, okay, we're going to try to, regardless of of what the Electoral College votes are, regardless of what the court says, we're going to try to come up with some cockamamie, half-baked scheme to prevent the orderly transition of power. I think it is anti-democratic. I think it is bad for the country, not just in 2021, but it's going to be bad for the country moving forward because the hallmark of this country since the beginning has always been the peaceful transition of power as reflected in the votes of the general populace. And I guess I'm a little bit disappointed that you have lawsuits like were filed yesterday that you have Republican representatives signing on on to this and that you don't have at least a widespread number of Republicans saying this is Looney Tunes. We, we cannot do this. To do this would make us the equivalent of a banana republic. And by the way, it's not going to work. It's not going to work, so all we do is align ourselves with a kook fringe. 855-616-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss in just a moment. I tell you, stories like this make my head explode. Can't we just recognize that whether you like the result of the election or not, the people have, in fact, spoken Joe Biden is going to be the president on January 20th, and now people have to move on from that. Is this a complete waste of time? My answer would be yes, it's a waste of time, but it's also very, very bad for this country. All right, 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss in a moment. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And, and, and by the way, I, I understand that the the procedure, I mean, that, that I understand that the House of Representatives meets to ratify the results of the Electoral College. And I, I, I understand that 
under some interpretations of the Constitution, you could have legislators who do what they're talking about, say, regardless of what the Electoral College says, regardless of what the courts say, we're we're not going to cast our votes in accordance with the way that we're not going to cast we're going to object to the vote tabulating process and, and we're not going to accept the results of the election. I, I guess you could do that. It's never happened before, but, but that would be absolutely catastrophic for this country. This is essentially saying we become the banana republic. We become a totalitarian state and we do not allow for the peaceful transition of power. And, and do you, do, do you really want that? And I guess, for for all my conservative friends out there who say, oh, we, we've got to do this. Imagine if the situation were reversed. Imagine four years from now if a president-elect, Nikki Haley, is is being blocked or there's people that come up with these cockamamie schemes to block her from taking office because, well, we, we, we don't want the Nikki Haley results. Imagine what your reaction would be. Jason in Sheboygan. Jason, you're on WTMJ. Hey, good afternoon, Jeff. I, I just want to say my opinion real quick, and uh, sure. I don't think it's going to work, but as soon as they try this, it is going to lead to more protests, more burning of buildings, more of everything. And let's say it does even happen. Guess what? We're going to have a civil war. We don't need any of this. I, and it's time to move on and, and just go forward and I mean, we're still all Americans, and, and I'm just tired. I, I guess I'm just tired, and I'm done with it, you know, and I, Jason, it's to me I, ridiculous. I, Jason, I, I, I am too. I, I mean, I, I, am, I am too, and I think that's where the vast amount, a number of Americans are. And this is my cautionary tale to Republican elected officials who sign on to this silliness because they're afraid there might be a backlash from some of the fringe elements of the Republican Party. You're going to have to eat these decisions you know, when, when you run for re-election two years from now or four years from now or six years from now, you're, you're going to you're assigning yourself and you're putting yourself in bed with the kook fringe. And there are kook fringe on the right and there is a kook fringe on the left. And I just don't think that that's where you, you want to be. Look, I, I understand the argument. Let's file lawsuits. We, we want to let the courts review these elections and things like that. OK, that that has happened. The results have been determined. The Electoral College has met. All right. If the best thing that could happen for this country right now were to for President Trump to come out of the bunker, recognize that, all right, the the vote count did not go his way and then figure out, you know, what you want to do positively moving on. You know, what what do you want to do over the next year, the next two years? Do you want to continue to have a role in politics? What is that going to be? But to try to enlist people in this half-brained idea of, of let's try to say to hell with what the courts say, to hell with what the Electoral College says, to hell with what the voters say, we're, we're going to try to figure out a way to maintain power. I'm, I, I'm, I'm sorry that, I, I mean, civil war, maybe, but, but that's the, the majority of the American people, including, my guess is, 50 million of the 70 million people that voted for President Trump, they're, they're not going to go along with that, maybe more. Um, and, and it's time for the grown-ups 
to now start to come in and say, all right, look, we re- understand that we're going to risk alienating a, a certain fringe element that's out there. But but enough is enough. The fat lady has sung. Let's let's move on. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Um Jeff, let's see. Um, this makes my blood boil. I'm sick and tired of some of these kooks trying to overthrow our democracy. It can't lead to anything good. No, it 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 can't. Um, Jeff, these Republican electors, do you really think the Democratic voter is going to vote for them? Um, they should be listening to the Republicans and those people that are upset the election was rigged. Collecting ballots in a park is illegal. All right. If if you want to challenge the procedures, I, I get it. I, I, I understand. And, you know, there's going to be a number of lawsuits over the next couple of years determining what procedures are legitimate and what procedures aren't. But but the time for that in this election has now, in fact, passed. And what you need to recognize is we need to continue to have the orderly transition of power. Jeff, this election was a fraud, and we should never give it any legitimacy. I'll sign on to your way of thinking as soon as you can give me a logical and fair reason for the stopping of the vote counting in several key states for hours, and then continued counting until the result the left wanted was achieved. The court's decisions to uphold this fraud diminished the judiciary to banana republic status. You know, and I, I confess, I, I don't know what to say to stuff like this, because I, I understand that there are are people out there who, for whatever reasons, have latched on to these different theories that, that, that this is this is incorrect or that's incorrect or the voting machines, you know, took millions of Trump votes and turned them into Biden votes and things like that. But but all, all this this stuff, the, these crazy theories that are out there have have no basis in. In fact, at least at this point in time, with all these different lawsuits, there, there wasn't any evidence established that there was any in significant degree of fraud. Is is there fraud in elections? Yeah. There's the lady in Cedarburg that tried to vote for, for her dead partner. Okay, she, she got caught with that. And again, in Wisconsin, you can argue, I think, legitimately, legitimately gee, the people who turned in ballots in Madison – being told that they were allowed to do it by the clerk's office at this democracy in the park thing, you know, is that a violation of state statutes or not? Okay, you, you can have that argument. The courts are going to have to decide that at some point in time. But but the idea that we're going to throw out thousands and thousands of otherwise legitimate ballots cast by people who were entitled to vote is just it's it's anti-democratic, and I don't care whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, you shouldn't want to sign on to this sort of idea, much less some idea of, of let's have legislators on the floor of the House of Representatives try to stage what would ultimately be a coup, something that you would expect in a banana republic somewhere. And if you don't, I, look, I, I understand people don't want to see Trump leave. At least some people don't. Some people don't want to see Joe Biden come in. But but this is the way the system works. People win. People lose. If you're upset your guy lost, well, get mad. Get involved. You know, work hard to make sure that the results are different the next time. But to suggest, okay, we we want to block the results of elections. I, I'm sorry, I I just I, that that's not good 
for anybody, and it could be devastating to the country. And I, for one, don't want to live in a country where every time we have an election, we're, we're going through this, where a group of the people who lost the whose candidate lost the election becomes just incensed and convinced that the election was in fact stolen from them by fraud and so we have to use despite evidence no evidence supporting those theories we have to come up with all these different ways that we can try to um, undercut the result of that i don't want to live in that kind of country scott in south milwaukee scott you're on wtmj good afternoon Jeff. Hi, scott. Uh, i agree with your point 100 percent whatever and that the adults whatever need to come need to come into the room the politicians who I'm disappointed in, who I'm disappointed in, who have not shown leadership, whatever in this area, are politicians like Scott Walker, that Tom Tiffany from Northern Wisconsin, um, Marco Rubio, um, Mark Meadows, Kevin McCarthy, are guys, are politicians like that who are it, who, who, who a lot of these far right wing people believe in and, and will listen to. If those individuals would would come out, whatever, and say and make a definitive statement, yep. I think a lot of this would end, and that's why I'm very disappointed, whatever. And like yeah. the indi- I mean, there's others out there who could help out, whatever, but they're refusing to not to because they want to play politics with it. Well, or, or, they, or, or they're afraid of alienating some of the hardcore Trump supporters. And, and I, look, I, I, I get it. it. It's like some Democrats are afraid of alienating the kook fringe, the, the far left-wing extreme part of their party. And it is... It, it hurts. It, it ends up hurting you. The reason, in my opinion, Democrats didn't do as well as they were predicted to do in down-ballot races is that they got tagged with this defund the police thing, that the left-wing fringe of the party was, all right, we're, you know, we're going to support all the, this stuff, and, and the vast majority of America wasn't behind it. But you had Democrats that refused to stand up to the kook element in their party, the defund the police stuff, and, and it cost them at the polls. For Republicans... Yeah, I think now, I mean, who knows, two years from now, four years from now, lots of stuff changes over time. But yeah, but do you want to be one of those Republicans running who who signed on to some last minute attempt to try to essentially, I I don't know, delegitimize an election that the vast majority of people think was was legitimate? And I guess I I just don't want to be on that side. Well, well, we'll see how this all works out. At the end of the day, matter of fact, there's a couple of Republican commentators who are saying they're trying to discourage the legislators from doing this because it isn't going to work. It, it, at the end of the day, it's not going to work. And so why associate yourself with some kind of kooky power grab type of thing that's going to follow you through the rest of your career and it's got no chance of succeeding? You know, will some people still try it? Well, time will tell. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. I'm getting a number of texts saying, Jeff, what don't you understand about the rampant fraud that was out there? Clerks would fill in information on the outside of, of ballots that, that the witnesses was incomplete. So, for example, husband witnesses a wife's ballot. Uh, they put it in the envelope. The husband signs the witness statement, sends it in, but doesn't include his zip code. All right. So rather than disqualifying the ballot, municipal clerks have been told that hey, when there's no issue, this is the address you can put in the zip code. And somebody said, well, that, that's fraud. No, to me, no, to me, fraud is dead people voting. To me, fraud is non-existent people voting. 
It is not, at least in my opinion, fraud where somebody who legitimately casts a ballot. I filled out the ballot. I send it in. My husband, my spouse has witnessed this, um, but it's not my ballot. It's not going to be rejected because she didn't put the right zip code on or failed to put the zip code. Counting my vote is not fraud. Fraud, it's, it's, if, I, if I return my ballot to a table that the clerk's office is running in a park in Madison. It's not fraud. If that same ballot would have been counted as if I put a stamp on it and sent it in. Now, it might be a practice which is not permitted by the statutes. And, and that's what ultimately is going to have to be decided. But to say that these otherwise legitimately cast ballots should be discounted because they're fraudulent. No, that, that's not fraud. That's a arguably it's a procedural error. But do you do you really want do you really want hundreds of thousands of ballots not counted because of what at best would be a technicality? And for all the conservatives out there who are saying yes, can you imagine what would happen if this was an argument being made by the Democrats? Can you imagine how your heads would be exploding? This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Texter just asked the scenario. If President Trump were to run for election in 2024 and win, could he run for re-election again in 2028? And the answer is no. The, the, second, the 22nd Amendment says that somebody can be elected president two times for a total of eight years. That, that's how it works. So you can run and win twice, and, and that's it. I guess, theoretically, it's possible for you to serve up to 10 years if you were the vice president and, and you took over for the president um, with with two years remaining or two years or less remaining on the term, then you could run twice. If you took over with more than two years running, you, you couldn't run again. So but the answer to the question is is no. OK, so you think Joe Biden's going to think it's going to all be beer and Skittles for Joe Biden. And, and the answer is no, because you know we've been talking a lot over the course of the last few weeks about the the, the issues and the fractures in the Republican Party with the, the people that are the hardcore Trump supporters versus the folks that are you know ready to move on, etc. Well, it's. It's not easy for Biden either because he's got some very, very vocal people on the, the what I'm describing as the kook left fringe that are out there that are pushing him. And you've got people who are really, really, really into identity politics, even though identity politics doesn't win elections. Here's a great example of that. The governor of California is a guy named Gavin Newsom, very, very liberal, very, very politically motivated, um, under the gun because of the, the covid pandemic. Newsom who desperately wants to be the president himself someday. Newsom is charged with appointing the next senator from California because Kamala Harris you know, was elected vice president. So she's going to be the vice president. She's a senator from California. That creates a vacancy. So he gets the appointment. And yesterday he announced that he had appointed a guy named Alex Padilla to be the next U.S. Senator from California. Padilla is his Hispanic. Matter of fact, he's got, he will be the, the first Latino, um, serving in the U.S. Senate 
from from California. And he's got a really, he's the two-term Secretary of State. He's got a really, really interesting background. Padilla was the son of Mexican immigrants. And and by the way, from a political perspective, uh, the Latinos make up about 40% of the population in California. It is it is the, the large, and I don't mean to imply that Latino votes are this monolithic vote, but it's, it's the largest demographic and increasing demographic in, in California. It's about 40% right now. And, and Padilla, a really compelling background, grew up in a, his, his parents were immigrants. His dad was a short order cook. His mother cleaned houses. He grew up in a working class neighborhood um, in Los Angeles. He's kind of a, a self-made guy. He ended up uh, getting a degree as a mechanical engineer and then got involved in politics. And he's, he's advanced through like assembly and things like that. He's been the two-term secretary of state. So he's really a compelling sort of guy. With a, a great backstory, he is moderate by California standards, and the, the again, if you just want to look at it as a purely a, on a demographic level, he's got a lot of appeal because you know this is he's Latino in a state where the Latino vote is is just going through the roof. So you understand why he was appointed, and by the way, he's also been a, a buddy. I don't want to say crony. I mean, he's he's been a political friend and ally of the governor of California for the last twenty some years. So they know each other well. So in many respects, I mean, they're describing it as kind of like an American dream story. You know, your dad's a short order cook, um, and you know your your mom has come into this country as an immigrant as well. She cleans houses. Dad's a short order cook, and, and now you know you're, you're going to be a senator from California. It's it's a great compelling story. So why is there the problem? Because he's getting ripped. This would be the governor of California is getting ripped for this appointment. Now, why why is he getting ripped? And I will give you three guesses, but the first two don't count. He's getting ripped by the black community for not appointing a black female. Oh, you know, with, with Kamala Harris leaving, there's no black females in the U.S. Senate. You could have appointed a black female. Um, here, if you don't believe me, here's the story. The, just to give you an example, the mayor of San Francisco says that Newsom's pick to fill the Senate vacancy of Harris is a real blow to the African-American community. Definitely, this is a real blow to the African-American community. It's an unfortunate situation as we're trying to move this country forward and making sure that black lives truly matter and that African-Americans have a seat at the table, especially African-American women. After what was done in this race on a national level, it is definitely unfortunate. Um, let's see. Uh, let's see. Another uh, another one of the commentators, I believe there should be African-American women in Congress. When Senator Harris is sworn in as vice president, there will be one African-American Democrat, one African-American Republican, no African-American women. So, And it goes on and on. I could read you more examples of this. But for people who think Biden's going to have it easy, I mean, just you just look at this identity politics that are playing out. And, and you've got California. Incredibly democratic state, you know, so it's not really like you have to worry about the Republicans, but you decide to tap a Latino. Hey, I'm going to find this guy who's incredibly qualified, who's got an American dream sort of story. I'm going to appoint him to the U.S. Senate. And and what do you get? You get ripped by another uh, group, in this case, you know, the, 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 the constituency that's supporting the black politician saying, well, how dare you appoint a Latino? 
I mean, just, you, you should have picked a black woman. Whatever happened to the idea of, of let's find the people that we think are the most qualified. Let's find people that we are comfortable with. Let's find people that we're going to do a good job for. And whether it's a 65-year-old white male or a 50-year-old um, Mexican-American uh politician or whether it's a 45 year old african-american congresswoman why why don't we find the person that's most qualified or that you're comfortable with and and then then allow that person to have the job and and again this is just this is one example i think biden's going to be dealing this with this for the next several years because you're going to have all these different groups saying well pick me pick me pick me and if you don't pick me we're going to be really mad at you and the governor of california is just finding this out when we come back i think i know what's going on i will explain we will discuss welcome back to jeff wagner on wtmj One of our texters said, well, Jeff, Grover Cleveland served two con- served two non-consecutive terms. Yeah, but Cleveland was president before the 22nd Amendment, but, but reg- I believe. But, but regardless, you, you can serve two non-consecutive terms, but you can only serve two terms. So that was the point. If President Trump were to run for election for a four-year term in 2024 and win, he would be prevented from running for another term. Most you can get is you can, you can only be elected to be president twice. That, that's the bottom line. That's kind of how it works. All right. I, we, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but I, I think I have a theory, and, and I'm, I'm not seeing it expressed in, in too many places, but to me, it's, to me a lot of times – if it walks like a duck and it talks like a duck, it's a duck. It's the most obvious answer. We have COVID-19, not just in Wisconsin, but, but all over that the, the pandemic is spreading. It's, it's interesting. I mean, California is now a new hotspot and California has had lockdowns and mask rules and social distancing and all these very draconian, uh, draconian measures for, you know, since, since essentially since March, and the, the spread is growing and growing and growing in California. Nothing they seem to be doing seems to work, which, you know, again, raises questions in my mind about have just, is it so infectious that all these things we've been told to do, while they can't hurt, that do they really end up helping? But, but anyhow, one of the things that we're seeing is that the number of hospital admissions going up, the number of deaths, you know, going up or remaining steady, but the number of people getting tested is is dropping. And so that has Tom Barrett, it's got Tony Evers, people, you know, concerned. And one of the things that, for example, they're doing is the Evers administration has announced that they're going to be distributing all these, like, at-home test kits for for COVID nineteen. Now I don't know exactly how they're going to work. Gru producing the show today and always. Have you have you ha- you've had a COVID test, right? Uh, yeah, a couple of the nasal swabs. I haven't had any of the fast results. Right. Yeah. Okay. So you're like I when I had a COVID test, what they did is they swabbed they stuck a swab down my throat, which that that was actually the worst because I have this bad gag reflex. And then they took one of those long swabs and stuck it up my nose and like swished it around and left it there for like to the count of ten. Not the most pleasant thing, but but that's how that's how they did it, 
that that's kind of how yours worked yeah it was great I, every time i've done it i've done it well <laughs> i mean it was it was easier than i thought it would be i should yeah. say um because i've done it only at miller park um but every time they ask the first time i was there they asked if i've ever done it before i said no and they say okay here's what i'm going to do i'm going to put the swab up your nose and yep. and and you know yep. twirl it around for about four or five seconds and the person counted which i like too because then you, you know you're working you're with them and counted to 10 yeah <laughs> they, they had it up there for 10 seconds Ooh. well she counted to 10 i don't know if it was actually 10 seconds i wasn't looking at my Got watch it. yeah <laughs> yeah but but they made it very clear and so yeah. i knew exactly i already knew what i was getting myself into and what was to be expected but they yeah. Sort of reiterated, so you're clear. Yeah. It was nice. So, yeah, I mean, well, and yeah, and you know the results one way or the other. Now, what they're sending out to people, if you want, um, you get their saliva tests, which I assume you, um, I don't know if you swab something or whatever, you, they tell you how to collect the saliva um, and then how to ship it off to be processed. So it's it's not the, the nasal swab, and I don't know what the accuracy of the thing is, but they're they're trying to do this. Because they, they've noticed that even though the, the numbers, like I say, are, are holding steady or going up, what they're finding is the number of people who are going in for testing is dropping just dramatically. Um, where is the number I have here? They apparently, they, they say that they have the capacity in the state of Wisconsin, we have the capacity to, um, like test like 60,000 people on, on a daily basis, and, and yet there's only a fraction of that, like 10,000 people getting tested. And so what they're trying to do is figure out ways to make it easier for people to do it, I guess. I don't think, I don't think the reason the number of tests are down is because it's not easy. I don't think the reason the number of tests are down is because it's not convenient. I think the reason the number of tests are down is because people don't want to know. And, and I, I look, and I, I'm not, I'm not saying that that's a good strategy or, or a bad strategy, but I think what's happening is for people who have mild symptoms. Now, obviously, if it's a situation where you're running 102 fever and you, you, you can't breathe and you feel like you've got the gorilla that's sitting on your chest, I mean, obviously, if it's a situation where you feel that you need medical help, well, well clearly, you know, you're, you're going to go in and get it. But I think there's a lot of people out there who are having the, the mild symptoms. Oh, I've got a little bit of a, I've got a little bit of a headache. I, I've got what I would describe as, as a minor, it's a minor cold. Gee, I ran a, I ran a low grade fever for a day or two, but the fever has kind of broken. I think those, those people are making the decision that they're, they're not going in because again, once they go in and once they get tested, if in fact they test positive, that triggers th this entire list. And I'm not complaining about it. I, I understand why it happens. I mean, you, you end up testing positive and then it, it, it gets recorded and your, that information goes to the contact tracers and you get those calls. And then if you're a responsible person, you know, once you know that you have COVID, well, they're going to tell you, you got to you got to quarantine for 10 days. You've got to quarantine for 14 days. You've got to do these things. I think there's a whole bunch of people out there who don't want to know. They want to be blissfully ignorant. They want to be the ostrich. They want to stick their heads in the sand and pretend that, that they don't have this. Well, if I don't know for sure, I, I don't have to do it. Now, I I think that's a particularly selfish way to be 
because, and I think it's it's one of the things that's leading, one of the things that, that's leading to the explosion of this, because whether you know or not for sure, whether you have COVID, if you have symptoms that could be, you know, indicative of COVID, whether you get tested or not, I think you should, your default position should be to assume that you've got it. And just saying, I don't want to get tested because I don't want to know, so I'm going to go to work or I'm going to continue to go out or I'm going to go to school or whatever. That's incredibly selfish. And I think that might be one of the things that's been leading to the the explosion of this, not necessarily people who are asymptomatic, but people who just won't want to know. They want to go through their normal lives. They're not feeling so sick or so incapacitated that they've got to get medical treatment. It's just, okay, I'm going to power through this. And that's all well and good. But as you're powering through it, if you're out and about exposing other people who might not be able to power through it, that's where the problem is. So for all these elected officials and politicians and bureaucrats who are saying, well, we don't understand why the amount of testing is going down, I, I think it's easy. I think the amount of testing is going that's going down, if the number of tests are going down, it's because people are making the decision they don't want to know. Now, I don't care if you want to send out self-test kits, but... I don't see that necessarily as being the answer. I don't think it's a matter of convenience. I just think it's a matter of, gee, um, hear no evil, see no evil, and there won't be evil. All right, when we come back, I want to do something that I do maybe once, maybe twice a year. We'll talk. Stick around. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. This is the last uh, Jeff Wagner Show of 2020. I'm taking off uh, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, and I'm off all next week, back January 4th. But I, I wanted to do something different in this hour. The, the last half hour, I've got some Christmas-related programming. I've, I've been thinking a lot. The... Uh, as I think if you're a regular listener of WTMJ, you know that uh, Clark Howard, for example, who's been a staple. Clark Howard and my our respective careers at WTMJ have been intertwined. And I've, I've told this story before. When I started the show full-time in November of 1998, Clark Howard w- was originally in por- a portion of this time slot for a variety of reasons. My, my show was noon until 2, and Clark Howard was from 2 until 3. And and we were, we being WTMJ, were one of the first uh, stations that he was syndicated at. Now, gradually, after about five years or so, my, my time slot expanded to noon to three, and Clark Howard's been a fixture on evenings and weekends for forever. But it's... I, I was just—it's been a, a, just a, just a great run. I mean, Clark Howard's had his show on here for 22 years. My show's been full time for 22, starting the the 23rd year. I have typically found that the program works best when. I, I pick topics and I share my thoughts with you, and then you you can react and you can agree or or disagree, and that that that's fine. It was, it's what kind of makes it interesting. Or sometimes we we tell stories or, or things of the like, but but that's typically how the, the program goes. I, as a general rule, don't do like what they would used to call open lines or call up and talk about whatever you want, because my experience has been that sometimes. That that just gets sidetracked because it, it it gets sidetracked and it might be interesting to some people but the larger audience not interesting to. Um, similarly, I I'm not a guy who who does the kind of like ask me anything sort of things and I, I understand that there's hosts who who devote regular segments to that. I I typically 
I typically don't because, again, for me, the program works best when I can kind of direct the, the things. It's one of, I think, my strengths as a host is finding things that are interesting to me and hopefully will be interesting to you, and, and then we end up discussing them. But once a year, typically as the year is winding down, and like I say, this is my last show of 2000. 20. I'll, I'll be back in 10 days or so. I, I thought at least for a segment or so, this, th- this might be the appropriate time. And a matter of fact, I'm, I, part of the thing that motivated me is I'm getting a number of very, very kind texts, people wishing myself and Fran uh, and my dog, Sasha, a Merry Christmas and talking about how they like the show. And I, that, that's great. I assume if you're listening, you like it. But I do know that there's some people who listen who, who don't like it, but they listen nonetheless. And, and, and that, that's okay as well. But I, I thought since this is the last hour of the last show of 2020, I, I would take a segment or, or maybe two and just open up the phone lines and, and again, in an open line, sort of variety if if there's something that you were wondering that that that's what i always i call the segment i was wondering i do it like i say maybe once a year and we're going to do it right now i i was wondering if you're a regular listener of this program something that you had a a question about how stuff operates what what's going on you know why haven't we talked about this um i I call it i was wondering and again this this is the chance if there's something that you've wanted to ask or been curious about I always reserve the right to kind of pass on answering the question. But if there's something that you have been wondering about as we come to an end of the program for 2020, um, this is the opportunity. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Iconet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Jeff, I was wondering. We'll be back to discuss in just a moment. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620. Jeff, I was wondering, what is the most memorable case you prosecuted um, from your days as a lawyer? And did you ever do a case that drew headlines? Yeah, I, 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 I mean, I was, I, when I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office, this was the height of the war on drugs, President Reagan, President Bush, and I was the lead prosecutor for the Organized Crime Drug Task Force. The Maybe the most memorable case for me was we dismantled a street gang called the Brothers of Struggle. Um, we had there were twenty. We tried twenty-two defendants at once. This was it was my idea to try twenty-two defendants at, at once, and I I think we we got convictions in everyone except. A, there was one defendant, the pregnant girlfriend of the the ringleader, and I think the jury felt sorry for her and, and cut her loose. But that's fine. But the, a lot of memorable cases. Um, there was one in 1986 where it was my case. It was at the time the largest seizure of cocaine in state history. Um, subsequently surpassed. But yeah, we had had a lot of a lot of cases as um, and again the highlights of the war on drugs. Um, let's see. Uh, da da. Um, Jeff, um, I was wondering, um, let's see, uh, okay, 855-616-1620. Let's start with, um, Ray in Illinois. Ray, you're on WTMJ. Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas. Hi. Thank you, and, um, thank you for providing me some great company as I've had to work at home these last nine months. You are very welcome. Thank you for joining me. I appreciate that. You bet. Um, I was wondering, um, because I know you talk very glowingly about Fran. My wife, uh, yeah. How did you and Fran meet? Okay, fair fair, fair question. Thanks for the call. No, matter of fact, I was, um, 
I, I was somewhere this morning, and we were talking. The, the the person said, "You know, you're really lucky to have her to to married her because she's she's the total package." And I said, "She is." Now, here's the deal, my m- Fran was the general manager. She ran a, a restaurant, a very, very popular restaurant in North Shore of Milwaukee that my late wife, Sue, and I used to go to all the time. Then um, there came a point in time where she left that restaurant and, and went out to another one in Washington County. We just didn't follow her out there, so we kind of lost touch a little bit. My wife got sick. I think people know know the story. Um, got diagnosed with terminal liver cancer and, and lived for about a year from the diagnosis. So we, we hadn't seen I hadn't seen Fran in a, in a few years, but we, we had known her again by patronizing the restaurant. Actually, her cousin was the general sales manager here on the TV side at, at TMJ4. In any event, she didn't know Sue was sick. She ultimately heard that Sue had passed away after the fact and then reached out that that's that summer and said you know how sorry she felt and we, we ended up getting together for a, a drink or something like that in the fall and then started seeing each other and one thing led to another and a year later we got married and i'm very lucky but thank you for asking there, there's no question she is if for people who know her she is the real deal 855-616-1620 andy in waukesha andy you're on wtmj good afternoon good afternoon jeff uh, merry christmas same to you sir I was wondering if there's any possible way that the radio station could sync the Packers broadcast with the TV broadcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that... I used to watch all the time, watch the TV and listen to the radio. Now the radio is five seconds ahead. And it just ruins the watching portion. Yeah, and thanks for calling. Now that's a question better directed to our engineers. But let me let me give you a part of the the problem is that the different TV networks have have delays. I mean, stuff like for example, right now on our radio station, we're we're in a we're in a delay. There there's a six or seven second delay, which is why we always turn people to tell people to turn down the radios because if you're listening it in the background you get confused because you're hearing yourself seven seconds later. That the T V stations all have have delays and the delays are different. That's my understanding. So part of the problem is what what do you sync it with? Do you sync it, you know, if the game's on Fox, maybe the delay is one thing. If the delay if it's on ESPN, it's another. If it's on cable, it's one thing. If it's over the air, it's another. If it's streaming, it's another. So I, I think there's all sorts of technical things, but I'm I'm with you. Um I, I notice it particularly in baseball because I, I love to listen to to Bob Euchre and whoever his partner is. And and my preferred way of watching the game is to watch the game on TV and to listen to it on the radio. And so I'm I'm with you. They tell me that there's technical issues that are there. 855-616-1620. Tim in Hartford. Tim, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Tim. My name is Jim, not Tim. Oh, well, okay. We're going to have to talk to my producer. He's now, okay. Okay, Tim in Hartford. Hi, Tim. (laughs) Hi. Hi. My question is, I've been thinking about this for years, and I want to know why WTMJ parted ways with the Wisconsin Badgers. Um, okay, fair enough. Well, th- thanks for the call. I, you know, for, for years and years ago, um, well, I, I don't know. We were we were the flagship for the Packers, the Brewers, the Badgers, and the Bucks. Now, I, I'm again, I'm th- that's made by people. I don't know if it's on a on a 
a higher pay grade, but on a different pay grade than mine, that decision. My understanding is that, see, we, we always, we have conflict, in the most simple term, at least my understanding was, you know, we, we have, we have conflicts all the time. You got Packers games that come up against Brewers games, for example, in, in the fall. You've got Bucks games that come up with Brewer against Brewers games in the spring. You'd have Bucks basketball games that would come into conflict with Badgers games during the winter. And, and so there, there's always a, a prioritization. And, and my understanding, at least, is one of the main factors is, is the Badgers wanted to be the, the top priority. And I understand it. I mean, it was a legitimate thing. And, and we, you know, we just weren't able to accommodate them, you know, when it came to, you know, those issues. And so I, there were a number of other factors as well. But it's it's just at some point in time when you have a wealth of riches. And I, I know that whether it's it's on WTMJ or on our sister ESPN station, um, I you know, at some point in time, I, I know our management that is very, very sports oriented. I, I know that they would would love at some point in time if the right deal could work out. I'm sure they'd have they'd, they'd love to have Wisconsin basketball and football and things back. It just years ago when this was going on, it just I, I don't think we were able to accommodate each other. But it was a very a- amicable parting. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. Dennis in Milwaukee. Dennis, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. First Hi, of all, Merry Christmas. Same to you, sir. Thank you. Jeff, I'm wondering if you could give me and your listeners uh, a brief course in our Judicial System 101. Let me explain. I think everybody, all your listeners, know that U.S. Supreme Court justices are appointed by the President and confirmed by the Senate. And at at the state level, Supreme Court justices are elected. But we've got a whole series of federal judges, local judges, court commissioners, and I'm wondering if you could go over basically the judicial structure and which judges are appointed and which judges are elected, sure. and what exactly what exactly are court commissioners? That okay. term has come up quite a bit. Okay, I'll fair enough. Sure, okay, fair enough. On, on the federal level, federal judges are appointed by the president, and confirmed by the Senate, and they serve for life. That, that's it. You might see the term magistrate judge. Magistrate judges are, um, are, are people that are hired by the, the judges, the federal judges, to do, to do judicial work. Sometimes they'll hear trials, but they'll set bail and things like that. But they're, they're hired by the judges, and they serve, like, I think, seven-year terms is what it is. So that's how the federal system works. On the state level, um, circuit court judges, let's start at the base. Circuit court judges are elected in Milwaukee County. I think we have about 50. They run for terms. I believe the terms are six years in length. So they are elected. Court commissioners are high, are like magistrate judges. Court commissioners are hired by the, the circuit court judges. And I think it varies a little bit, but maybe it's the chief judge that makes the hiring. But court commissioners are, are hired and, and they perform what I'm going to say like ministerial acts. They'll, they'll set bail. They'll, they'll handle initial hearings before they act as assistants essentially to the circuit court judges. Above the circuit court judges in Wisconsin, you've got appellate court justice judges and those judges are also elected 
and then you've got the Supreme Court judges, justices, which are um, elected as well. If there's a vacancy, the governor gets to make an appointment. So if somebody leaves the circuit court bench, the governor gets to appoint somebody to fill that vacancy, but then the person has to run for um, re-election. Let's talk to uh, James in Milwaukee. James, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you, Jeff. Um, I got two. Uh, I got a cool question, a double double edge question. Since you're uh, since you took a are a lawyer and everything else type of thing, are you ever going to write a book of, of being a lawyer? <laughs> and are you going to ever write a book of being a radio host here, like you've do, been doing yeah. for the last twenty twenty five years? I mean, uh, both. Both things seem to intertwine, and you seem to do a good job of both, Jeff. You well, know, uh, I, I don't know, or, or else I've, I've, I've fooled people. Thanks for your call, James. At least I've, maybe I've fooled people for my entire career. No, I don't, I don't think I have the discipline to write a book. I, I think you need to have a discipline to do that. Um, a couple texts. Um, Jeff, uh, a couple variations here. I was wondering if there's ever a chance to get Charlie Sykes back for a day. Well, Charlie might come back for a day. I'm a huge fan of both you and Charlie. Well, yeah, we worked together for 18 years. Somebody else is asking. Asking, uh, you know, Charlie's gone on, and he's been gone four years now. Isn't that time, how time flies? It said that, that you have any desire to kind of carve out a, a TV niche? No, I, I don't. You know, I, I did TV for five or six years, and I'm uh, no, nah, I, I, I don't. That's it's been it's been great for Charlie, but no, nah, I don't. Uh, I, I don't think that. Jeff, do you ever miss putting the bad guys away? People ask me, do you miss being in the U.S. Attorney's office? And I, my answer is. If you could try to dial back the clock, turn back the clock to 1987, do I miss being in the U.S. Attorney's Office in 1987? Sometimes. But um, things are different now. Things evolve. Things change. And I have been truly blessed in my life to have found th- this second career. And um, I, I just... One of the reasons I love to do these segments, especially this time of the year, is to kind of reflect back and and just tell you how much I appreciate you. I used to end every program by by saying that I understand when it comes to your radio listening, you've got a lot of different choices, and I do appreciate you spending the last couple hours with me. That's really true. Um, that is absolutely true, and um, that that has not changed at all. Um, Jeff, you ran for Wisconsin Attorney General in the early 90s against Jim Doyle in 1994. I was wondering why you never ran for political office again. Because what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. No, some people get the political bug, and I I just, I, I actually fell into this radio thing, and I just... I, I, you wouldn't be able to do radio and run for political office. So, um, you know, <laughs> this, <laughs> this was, this was clearly the better choice. Jeff, um, I think you should, um, invite your wife on the show with you for one day. Well, maybe we could work something like that out. Jeff, how's Jonathan Green doing? Does anybody still play the Frankenstein recording at Halloween? Yes, um, we, we did. Matter of fact, it was either Steve Scafidi or Scott, War- Scott Warris played the Frankenstein recording. And, um, I run into John about once or twice a year. He is doing well. He's living, I think, full time in Arizona now, but he is doing well and enjoying his, um, enjoying his time. Jeff, how did you get into radio? I called up. I was practicing law. I called up the program director at a radio station. I said, this is who I am. Do you ever need fill-ins? They took me out to lunch. They tried me out. They kept me. And so I filled in at a radio station in town up the dial for a couple years. WTMJ called me. 
said we'd like you to come over and work for us. I started here part-time while I was practicing law, and then in November of 1998, a full-time slot opened up. I thought I was going to do this for a year, maybe two. 22 years later, it, it's still it, it's it's still a great job, and I still love it. When we come back, we're going to find out what John and Melissa have on their minds for Wisconsin's Afternoon News.